watch out for this officer. His name is RT. And we, the real civilians that had never had anything to do with criminal life. What does RT stand for? Red Terror. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app. This is the third and final part of Ralph Hainel's story of his life in East Germany. In this episode, we hear about his time in the Stasi prison in Cottbus, which with its dark red brick facade was often referred to as the Red Misery. It's a chilling insight into Stasi prison conditions and the brutality that the political prisoners endured from the other inmates and the guards. We also hear about Ralph's eventual release and of some strange experiences he has in the reunited Germany. Again, I am honoured and humbled that Ralph shared this story with us. Now, I could really use your support to help me to continue the podcast. A simple monthly donation via Patreon entitles you as a monthly supporter to the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Still not sure? Listen to one of our Patreons tell you why they donated to the podcast. Hi, uh, my name's Glenn. I'm from New Zealand. I've always been fascinated by Cold War. This podcast just brings it all back to life, and Ian does such a good job of this. And that's just why I support him on the Patreon. Interested in helping us? Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for next week's episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where guests and listeners continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. So, back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Ralph back to our Cold War conversation. Now, in... May 1989, I believe you're transferred to Cottbus Stasi Prison. Yes, yes. Oh, this was strange. Number one, there was a whole train going through East Germany that was just taking prisoners from one prison to the next. I had no idea that there were so many prisons in the East. I mean, we know now the stories even today from Russia, how many prisons there are and what's happening there. But I had no idea. So we were put in the morning into this train out of a big truck. From the first time I saw other people up to this day for 10 months, I've only seen the runners, the guards, their interrogation officers and the one cellmate I had and once a month for half an hour, my mom. But until then, I had never seen anybody else. So uh, with real criminals now together who had broken somebody's face, who had attempted to rob a bank, who had... um, um, gotten money somewhere, whatever. Suddenly we were in this prison train together and the wagon was disguised as a postal wagon. 
And I still remember at one train station, you could hear voices outside, women talking. Uh, it was springtime no? and you were ready for 10 months in a cell, in a mini cell. I didn't even know how the sun looks anymore. So for real. And now somebody was explaining there on the platform, oh, yeah, this is where our mail in this wagon and one of the criminals started to bang on the window. No, those are criminals. We are all murderers inside here. And then you he heard somebody scream outside, running away. Uh, I don't know what they must have thought. So and then they transported us. The wagon was always put onto another train at the end of yet another train and then near Berlin. We were left for several hours in the heat, just like this, the wagon on some train track outside the train station. And first people were uh, going down unconscious. You were in, there were tiny little cells, two people sitting on one seat and across from you to other people, um, almost touching knees. Since there were now real criminals in there, you, of course, avoided that and you avoided uh, eye contact. But now imagine you try to sit in a, part of a train wagon where you cannot move your left elbow you cannot move your right elbow because they're sitting somebody you cannot stretch your legs because there's the uh there the knees of somebody else and sweat is running down and at one point it stops because your lips are breaking because there's such enormous heat and you think you're about to lose it and what if you fall unconscious so at some point in the night we arrived in Cottbus And they had a long two guards held a long chain and your uh, handcuffs were locked in onto this chain left and right, left and right. Suddenly there were maybe 30, 40 people on this line. There were several other guards. And then, yes, it had to happen. On the other platform in Cottbus, a train held. And I think it was just vacation time. There were kids on the window Mommy, are those real criminals there? And the mom something, yeah, those are really bad, bad people. Never do anything like this. Otherwise, you will end like those. They have done bad, bad deeds. And I thought, oh, geez, really? Really? <laughs> and then we were brought into this big prison, and there we were in the first so-called transporter cell. And, oh, I, I don't want to wish this upon anybody. It was so dirty, and they, they would need a lot in a film to stage a scene like this. It was bad. And then we were told by people who worked there who brought the so-called food in the morning, And they said, yeah, you, you're on the list. You're staying in Cottbus. You, you, you. Somebody else was going back on the train the next day to be brought to another prison. And then they said already, be careful when you see this officer. Be careful if you see this officer. His name is so-and-so, but his nickname is uh, Arafat. And watch out for this officer. He, you see him right away. He's very tall. His name is RT. And we kind of, the, the real civilians that had never had anything to do with criminal life, you also saw it. We still had suits on. And uh, what does RT stand for? Red Terror. That was his nickname. And he was actually, as we were told later, proud of this nickname, the Red Terror. And then I met him the next day when we were brought into our first arrival cells. And uh, 
he was yelling at at us in order to uh, draw a picture. I don't know anymore if it was the first or the second day he was looking at us. You guys are the scum, you the ones you call yourself political prisoners. You are the traitors of our country and stomp in the ground everything that our glorious people have watched, have basically achieved after World War II. And he said, and if you ask of my opinion, nobody did, he said, my wife is ugly, but she is a communist. You guys are just plain scum, and this is how I'm going to treat you. And then the little bit tougher time started, tougher than in the Secret Service prison where you were psychologically tortured, the so-called white torture. There it really got hands-on then later. So they were f- people like the Red Terror and the the one nicknamed Arafat would, would beat you? Um, things like this happened. It was in the 80s much less. You had to watch yourself, and there too, I must say, I've seen fights where uh, criminal prisoners beat up political prisoners. One thing that happened, the criminal became uh, some kind of prize, uh, a day outside with his girlfriend or an extra parcel into the prison, and the political prisoner may have lost his next transport to the vest because if you have a black eye or broken nose you couldn't go on transport as they put it we can't sell damaged goods uh, into the western world so and i think uh, i also have not proof that there may have been in my file nose martial arts is a martial arts instructor do not engage might kill you or anything I luckily enough got not involved in anything. And there were many moments when it was about to happen. And I remember two criminals in particular and they wanted to and then turned away and didn't do anything. Back then I thought, oh my gosh, do I have like Kane, Kwai Chang Kane and Kung Fu? Do I have this vibe that I will kill you with my pinky finger if you lay hand upon me but maybe it was something as simple that they were called uh, they were told don't do anything this is i know special forces dude or so they must have said something so i got luckily out of it but i saw others who were beaten up i saw some uh, I was uh, my children showing this in Cottbus i said you go in the hallway around the corner that in case somebody is coming your way, you do not stand there suddenly face to face. Because number one, this is where it happened that guards shoved people down the stairs and then said, oops, somebody had just cleaned the stairs and somebody slipped and fell down. Nothing we can do. This is, uh, since you had to, you couldn't walk directly to them. This would have been seen as an attack. And as soon as you saw, you had to salute, even as a prisoner, just like in the army. It's weird, but you had to salute. And that's why you walked very carefully through the walkways. And from Red Terror is known up to the end that every now and then he looked by then around because he was 
already known and some secret officers, as it became known later, have said, this guy has to be removed. He's damaging too many goods that we try to sell to the West. But every now and then he took out his huge keychain, a huge uh, iron ring with dozens of keys and pulled it across somebody's face. So it still happened. And then, uh, as we were told by insiders, if you say it was this officer, then we can't help you anymore. So you you walked very careful. You moved very careful around because you always had to assume next moment something is going to happen. And I've seen some scenarios that were not very good. So we were three guys to other political prisoners. We became friends and basically watched our backs, backs and protected us a little bit so that somebody said, move quickly, then you knew there's something behind you and you had to get out of the way. So those moments, yeah, it was kind of strange, completely unreal. Yeah, yeah, I can't really imagine that, but I appreciate you describing those those circumstances. Um, were some of the guards better than others? And what I mean by better was friendly at all or were they all really aggressive um, with the prisoners? There were some who just didn't give a damn. Really friendlies I didn't encounter there. It For a moment, your question takes me back to the uh, Stasi prison. The guy who did at the very beginning the photo, uh, it is. it also became known much later that people who worked in the pretrial jail of the Secret Service were demoted employees of the Secret Service that either had become alcoholics, messed up a big job, and they ended up as guards in the prison. And this guy always had some alcohol on his breath. Uh, and I still remember when I sat on this famous chair where you have your photo taken front side and then the 45-degree angle, and he looked at me and said, why don't you smile a little bit? And at this day, I didn't find it funny. Now I always have to laugh uh, that he said, why don't you smile a little bit as, hey, yeah, it's, it's nice, cool experience. <laughs> Thanks for letting me be part of this. I don't know what he was thinking there in the Stasi prison. So the pretrial, there were a few who were a little bit nicer uh, but in the big prison, I think there was too much watching also since there was always the war between criminal and political prisoners that nobody really trusted anybody. It was only the night the Berlin Wall came down. You possibly have read about this already in my book where uh, for weeks already there was this very strange feeling. Uh, we didn't get newspapers anymore in August. In August was this huge event where several hundred East German citizens were fleeing across the border that was uh, opened for a couple of hours to Austria. It was the so-called Pan-Hungarian Breakfast. And this is where we were move, moved out in August of 89. And then we were told we have to move back in, no lunch today. And we found out somebody had in the lunchroom uh, painted on the wall, hungry and what happens to us. 
Uh, and we, what does it mean? It took a while until somebody said, it looks like somebody from the outside had told us that lots of East Germans fled in Hungary and crossed the border. And then came those nights where day and night the gates opened of the prison in Cottbus. And then uh, a strange kind of peace happened, like a standstill between the uh, criminal and political prisoners, no fights anymore, uh, because they said there's something strange going on there. Every night, every day, there are truckloads of people arrested off the streets and being put. There was also a criminal pretrial prison or jail in the prison of Cottbus. It was lots within those walls. And we said, how can they arrest so many people off the streets? And there are demonstrations out there, those so-called Monday demonstrations. And we, what? Demonstrations? Yeah, people call for more freedom. And so we had no idea really in there. And then more and more times, parts weren't delivered into Cottbus. I, for example, worked in a three-shift system uh, for Pentagon, a camera who built really good cameras were mostly sold to West Germany. So West Germans in their catalogs were buying those super cheap but really good cameras, not knowing that they were built in hard prison labor. Then there was uh, a company in there that apparently produced parts for IKEA in them. And so more and more times parts came didn't come in. So this one night we were uh, walking out. We thought we have night shift and we come out. And suddenly the guards, the dogs have their muzzles removed. The guards have their uh, Kalashnikovs around their necks. And then in our, like a marching block, where a whole shift is out of the prison block, marching to get to work within the prison. Suddenly the older ones in here, shoot, shit, history repeats. They're going to kill us all. They're, they're doing it again. They have done it before in German history. Oh, my God. They're putting us up against the wall. And a couple of older people. And then we were young. We didn't take it serious. And then after all, they moved us in. We had to hold a couple of the older ones that thought this is the end. So we walked into the production hall inside this prison complex. And then a civilian came in from... Uh, the camera company and he was drunk we thought what is going on on out there we just thought the guards are going to shoot us we thought they're going to uh, start sending their dogs because the dogs always had muzzles around and for the first time not and now we come in here and this dude is laughing and is drunk and then he asked us hey guys guess where i'm coming from And we, I don't know, a company party, birthday, family party said, no, I was on Kurfürstendamm. I was near the Cardiway in West Berlin. We, yeah, yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah, sure. And tomorrow the aliens land. We know they're already here for a long, long time, uh, but they're landing tomorrow. Of course. And said, no, no, I'm not joking. I was on Kurfürstendamm. The border is open. 
And we, you, you, you're joking. Come on, you can't do this with us. And then he said, yeah, <laughs> you guys are sitting for wanting to the best. And I was just in the best. And there, naturally, suddenly the mood turned and he disappeared and we were brought back. Cells were all locked. And then in every cell were between 10, 20, 25 people. And we thought, what? The wall is open. The border is open. People go into the West and come back. No, this can't be. This is, uh, for us, this is as if you check your lottery ticket in the evening and you have done the big one. Uh, you have all numbers right, and the next morning you wake up in the newspaper, it says the uh, money doesn't exist anymore. And this on the morning uh, when you just had a big lottery win. So we were in there, many for actually trying to flee, many for actually having tried to get across the wall, and now suddenly it's supposed to be open and everybody can go. So, yeah, it, it was a strange thing. Two days later, uh, my mom had her official visiting uh, appointment in Cottbus, and she came, and then one of the, uh, those were so-called teachers, the ones who were supposed to teach us the way of the communism so that we can be reintegrated in the most humane society. Uh, but I think he only had eight grades in school. So he came to the visitor table and then he said, yeah, there's just been an amnesty. Your son is in three days or so. He is leaving Cottbus. It was, of course, a very different visiting time that time. And then three days later was horrible connection from East Berlin to Cottbus. My mom had come, I think, at 10 in the evening and had to wait until 4 in the morning. I was supposed to be uh, left out of the building at 4 in the morning. And then uh, since you asked if there were any nice guards, no, in Cottbus there weren't any nice guards. But that morning or that night when we were prepared to leave, knowing that we will get into the vest, the guards have lost everything. Everybody was laughing about them as if something that is most dangerous to you is suddenly like a cuddly kitten has no power anymore. It was also a very strange experience. So that morning I walked at four in the morning out of the uh, prison and two other people came with me. They didn't release us all at once because we could have started a riot outside of the prison, whatever they thought might happen. Uh, since the opening of the wall, today we think that was it, the end of the Cold War, that there were many people, even with more border opening the next days after November 9th, that thought that it will turn around once, like a vent, enough people that don't want to live in East Germany and the West, that they will close it up and build the wall double as high. So there were serious concerns. Today, most people think November 9th and everything was done. No, it wasn't. So people were in fear of making it across many. So we, my mom had luckily gotten the last taxi and with somebody else, with, uh, did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you. 
the second of the three people who walked out there. Another one was a doctor. His wife just said, no, sorry, I have my uh, car. We right away drive across the border. We have to get out here before something happens. We need to leave the east. So this young man, the taxi driver on the Autobahn to East Berlin, and this young man, of, of, it suddenly, it came all out of him. He started uh, to talk uh, in Formula One speed. And at one point, the driver was from Cottbus, the taxi driver. He, he was already sniffing. We hadn't paid any attention to him. I thought he has a cold or so. He had to pull over. He started to cry. He said, we knew this prison was in our city. We knew there were these so-called political prisoners, but we had no idea what was going on in there. He was crying there on the side of the Autobahn. And it took him a while before he said, okay, I'm all right now. My mom invited him in East Berlin uh, for a coffee up to the apartment, the young man too. Then the young man um, disappeared to his family. I went to Rostock. I had to go from Berlin to Rostock to get my papers, where again, a friend and Kung Fu student of mine, suddenly the day I arrived in Rostock, suddenly he was where I had grown up, where I had lived previously, with his car drove by and he, oh, no way to meet you here. What a coincidence. Later, I knew it wasn't a coincidence. So he said, can I drive you into the city? He said, no, no, I'll go. How the heck didn't even know that I have to get into the city first. So I just quickly looked to the apartment that I had lived in, somebody else who I knew was living in there now. So then I made my way to the city and there was the, at the um, city council house uh, was the uh, department for interior. Um, yeah. Uh, all kinds of uh, things to do where you went uh, to apply for your ID and uh, uh, if you move to Rostock and so on. And I got into the building and back then there weren't any cameras yet. And I didn't know. And in an empty hallway, somebody came out who I had never seen in my life. And he looked, ah, Herr Hainel, Mr. Hainel, there you are. Now you're here to pick up your ID. And he came in the moment I entered this hallway and I'd never seen him. So there must have been from my time arriving in Rostock, even though the Berlin Wall was open, most people forget that the Secret Service was still fully operational until early 1990. So uh, they must have, I don't know, with walkie-talkie, uh, followed my way through the city. And this is how I knew the very moment I stepped into the building to pick up my ID. And then I had this. I packed a few things that a friend of mine had. And then I drove to Berlin. And I don't think even I left the suitcase at my mom's. I just wanted to get over. And then I walked this famous way through the Palace of Tears and got through with my East German ID, then onto the other platform that we could have never entered before that since 1961. And then I was in the S-Bahn and then the S-Bahn started to drive and it said Wannsee, uh, a place in West Berlin. But I thought, okay, no, it can't be that you're now in the free world, that you're now in West Germany, in West Berlin to be and I looked out of the S-Bahn and at one point I saw streets from the S-Bahn and I looked onto the streets and I, I remember I, 
I thought I see only real cars, no cardboard cars, no Trabant, no Lada. Those are only Western cars. That means I must be in the West. And then the first station came and it was a West Berlin station. And then I got out there at Bahnhof Zoo the uh, famous train station zoo where the uh, this trade center is with this big uh, mercedes star on top of the high rise building and what i've seen in the news before the center of west berlin kudam and all of it and i thought i am really in the free world I called up a friend didn't even know how to handle a telephone in the west because in the east you put your coin straight into the Uh, telephone at the corner there. So, uh, I, I looked, where can I put my coin? And somebody said, no, you have to place it on this outside thing and shove it sideways into the machine. This is because of bubble gum that's different here in the West. You're probably coming from the East. And I, uh-huh. <laughs> Not even knowing how to operate the telephone there. I guess things happen. So called up a friend we met. And then so the first things coming by a bakery with uh, 80 different kinds of buns. And I remembered for a flash of a moment, oh, my God, how often did I leave before work? Going to the bakery are like six buns. Oh, no, buns are already sold out. Going to the corner store, uh, one liter of milk. Oh, milk hasn't come in yet today. Going to the newsstand, do you have this? newspaper or do you have that magazine no 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 there were only four of this magazine and they're already all gone and so how you went from place to place and here suddenly a bakery tells you we we have 80 kinds of buns then the friend there said oh we're going to this pub we went past a liquor store and they had said over 120 different kinds of beer from all over the world and so those were the very first images that i thought oh my gosh this is really <laughs> you can get everything in here so a couple of days later um, I said, okay, I, I left my suitcase because I just wanted to get out of the East. So we went to Checkpoint, uh, yeah, to Checkpoint Charlie. And you could now cross before it was only for military personnel. And so my West Berlin friends who were also still afraid at the time that the wall might get closed again they said okay go over go to your mom and then get your suitcase and come right away back so i went over was strange going the other way from west to the east through checkpoint charlie so this is really this is close of meeting aliens so this is how it felt to be able to walk just through there past the uh, mps and so on If you're enjoying the content, please consider a monthly donation to support us. You'll get a free Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're preserving Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Now, back to today's episode. 
And I went to my mom, got my suitcase, and then I didn't want to go all the way back to Friedrichstraße. And then I just went. They had opened the very first subway station as a border point. And I don't know what I was thinking. I'd never been drafted to the army in the East, but you had gotten already with 18 the ID if you get drafted with your dog tag in it. And I had it in the suitcase. I don't know why I packed it, probably because I thought the wall gets closed into that lots of personal stuff. So I got with my mom to this border point there that was uh, a hole opened um, in the East German subway station and then the border patrol is still checking everything and what happens yes this stupid uh, army id that i had never needed falls out of the suitcase and he uh, no i have to call somebody you can't take this with you and there my mom almost had it she completely flipped out there and started to yell my son has just come out of prison yes because this is where you put people that are not of the same opinion as your party and this wall is open and we are free people of an hopefully soon, really free world, and you let him go now. And people start to stop, and he felt a little bit. He then said, okay, I have to confiscate this army ID, but he may go. So, and um, this is how I get then via old walkways that never had, no one had put foot on since 1961, Uh, that had been closed back then. So I walked down into the West Berlin uh, subway line, which, um, as you surely know, were driving under the territory of the East with many so-called ghost stations under the East. And this was my second time. And then I went to the refugee camp in West Berlin. <clears throat> and there it was really cool. Met a couple of US soldiers and it was it's like in a movie. And then you go through all the steps. Since there had been so many uh, refugees from the embassies that summer in 89, there was this stream of people at the refugee camp, uh, but they did take political prisoners who had just come out of prison and expedited their way through all the formalities a little bit. And I wanted to stay in West Berlin. Another thing happened that I never found out why it happened. The American Secret Service then told me, no, you cannot stay in West Berlin for your own safety. You have to be flown out to West Germany. So I didn't understand. It was kind of interesting. Americans, the CIA or whatever they were, they tell you they need to fly you out to West German territory out of West Berlin. thought, wow, hmm. Okay, cool, because I got a Pan Am ticket, a new Pan Am only from the movies, and flew to Hamburg. And from there, I went to the next refugee center in the north of West Germany. And because so many East Germans had fled via the embassies in Prague, in Budapest, and so on, thousands upon thousands in 1989, I arrive in the city of Neumünster in West Germany and get to the uh, German Red Cross who did the integration of refugees and political prisoners from the East there. And who did I see first? Former workmates uh, out of Rostock. And they, yeah, you made it too. And then they knew already the first lady who was doing it. 
And they said, he's a co-worker from us. He's a jailbird. He just came out of prison. And she, what? And they, no, 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 don't worry. He didn't rob a bank. So he's a political prisoner. Oh, oh okay. And then she said, okay, let me help you. So let's go on the sign because they're on the site. There were huge lineups. And then she said, okay, can I get your ID? And, oh, your name is Ralf Henel. And she, uh, to next page, aren't you born in Dresden? And I said, what? Huh? I said, yes. And she said, um, said, uh, said the year, birthday. She said, yes, exactly. This in May 1964 in Dresden, Ralph Hainel. She said, you've just been here a couple of weeks. I said, oh, lady, you have no idea how I would have wished weeks ago to have been here when the Berlin Wall was still closed. I said, but sorry to disappoint you. I have not been here. She said, yeah. And without looking at my ID, she repeated my name, birth date, and birth city. She said, yeah, you were here. And then at the time, because it was such a crazy time, we chalked it up under probably one of those weird things that happen in life, deja vu moment or something like this. Didn't follow up, but as it uh, happened later, that was the first time I was my first meeting my doppelganger. So this happened there. So at the time, I didn't think much of it. Uh, got settled in there in West Germany, and it was it was brilliant. It was all that it was what I thought it would have been. Started my training. I was a little bit weak, of course, after this time, ten months in interrogation, more than five months in a big house. Yes. Now, using a false identity or copying somebody's identity is a classic way of infiltrating an agent into another country so uh, potentially this was stasi work yes so i had experienced my first doppelganger at the time not at all getting even an idea of the significance it was all just like a big joke it must be a mistake can be how can somebody have a doppelganger why how what for so those times were really, uh, th there was much happening. Uh, both countries uh, not yet reunited, borders opening uh, or being open. So I didn't think much of it, forgot it at the time. So I moved for a short while, half a year or so to Switzerland. Thought, okay, I must, I just came out of prison and now all of this is happening. I need some quiet time to collect my thoughts, to think about what I'm doing with life. So I moved to Switzerland, but this was just a little bit too slow. Beautiful country, amazing to go on vacation, but living there in the mountains near big hotel or so, no. So uh, the fall of 1990, I moved back to Germany, this time to West Berlin, where I wanted to stay in the first place, where beginning the americans had told me in 89 that i cannot stay there because uh, for my personal safety that i had to be flown out so now i went there voluntarily because even that it took me decades to put all those puzzle pieces together so uh, i was in west berlin uh, met up with the two guys uh, 
where we had protected each other in Cottbus, in the big prison. They were falling back on their feet. Uh, they joined my Kung Fu training. I ended up opening the first Kung Fu schools, Wing Chun Kung Fu schools in East Berlin at the time, at a time where West Berliners had no interest yet of doing anything there. And it was a very exciting time period. Then living in West Berlin, seeing at the horizon always the TV tower in East Berlin, I get mail from the bank. thought, oh, okay, let's see what it is. And then I look at the account statement. I, unfortunately, uh, if one wouldn't have had if one would have had cell phones at the time, I would have instantly taken a photo of it. It was not my account. This I was sure there was way too much money in it. And on the letter itself was a different address, my name, but a different address. So I went to the bank. I said, it uh, would be really nice of you if there's something I don't know, but this is not my account and there's a different address on it here. But on the envelope was the label with my address where I lived. So I got this mail. What about it now? Uh, how come? So she took it uh, Uh, the bank employee, she took the letter, said, oh, yeah, there's something probably computer mix up. So you've gotten, he said, yeah, but that's my name on it. She said, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people with the same name, stuff happens. And so luckily I had remembered the address and I went back and I talked to the two guys. So since we have, uh, of course, in prison from all the other political prisoners who were there years longer and who had a lot of inside uh, views of what was happening in East Berlin and the big sale of prisoners. So then I remembered, wait a minute, in Neumünster, there had it already once where somebody said, I have a doppelganger. Now I got a count statement in my name, What where the, the letter is a different address. So one of the two confused students of mine We will go there. Let's have a look. So we went to this address, and it is kind of weird. It, uh, it's very strange. You go up in the building, and you look at an apartment door, and your name is on it. So um, as long as your name is not John Smith or so, which you may find in certain cities a lot of, so my name doesn't happen that often. So I knock on the door, ring the doorbell, nothing happens. Then a neighbor opens up, uh, can I help you? I said, yeah, we want to get to Mr. Hanel. So we were kind of chuckling. He said, oh, um, um, that is too bad. Uh, he said his company has a new A job for him and he moved out probably two days ago everything was uh, carried out of the apartment he is gone got a new job happened so suddenly we thought we have him here and strangely enough in the german language the company the firma is kind of a name for the stasi <laughs> so that's was the neighbor didn't mean it like this but Uh, it just fitted the moment. So I was at the bank and the moment I not complained, but asked about the letter, how it happened, this other Ralph Hainel had moved out of his apartment all of a sudden. We still thought it is strange, but hmm, well, weird things do happen in life. And uh, we chalked it up under that. What can you think of it? No, it's, it's weird, but if you have no explanations. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. 
I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. So at this time, my father talking to my mother started already. So what's your son still doing in Germany? And if he likes life, maybe he should move to another country, explore the world a little bit. But didn't make sense yet uh, what he was talking about. So I started, or I had started at a different workplace in West Berlin. And I had then attempted from East Berlin times to meet former friend, also Kung Fu, Kung Fu student in East German times, who had been a political prisoner, who had been arrested, um, to just see him again, because he had written to my mother while I was in jail, had sent her postcards from West Berlin and uh, material about his business, and that I can jump in there and he will help me and all of it. So somehow only at the at the beginning of 1991, it came up, hey, I haven't visited him because times were so crazy. So I went with my mom to get to his place of business in West Berlin at a very prestigious address. And we went there and there was no company. It was just a big... Uh, old apartment building and uh, then the guy who cleaned the floors and so on who was responsible for the house came out because I had rang a bell and said yeah I have here this business card I'm looking for this business he said yeah I see it's this address he said but there has never been businesses here there are a few more mailboxes in the house but this is it Otherwise, there's just people living here. They own their apartments. And, okay. So I ended up a day or two later calling him. And we were good friends during East German times until he was imprisoned by the Stasi. He had written while I was in jail. Well, and he was already in the West to my mom. So what could be the problem? But when I called him, he sounded really cold distance it was talking about yeah we're still doing business i said yeah you're doing the business i have not found it what happened and he was somewhat uh, leading the talk to a different topic and then we just ended so yeah good to hear from you okay see you bye and then i thought when i hung up my mom so are you going to see him i said i don't think so he didn't ask to meet up he didn't get to the point that I looked for his business and his business didn't exist and said, this is really weird. But we thought, okay, wall came down, Germany is reunited, some people don't want to be found, who knows what has, has happened to him. So at work, just a couple of days later, I meet a nice girl 
and once again, uh, bam, it works all out. Uh, she visits me in uh, my place. She was from East Berlin, worked in West Berlin, lived in West, uh, worked in West Berlin, lived in the East. So she visited me at my West Berlin apartment. And then just a few weeks into it, she uh, brought me a few gifts, shower gel and all kinds of stuff. And then one morning, naturally, I've used this stuff. So I get up in the morning and get ready for work, put my jacket on. And somewhat I feel, uh, I feel awkward. Something's off and I feel so sticky and as if I'm sweating and take my jacket off, pull, I had to really pull my shirt off my upper body. And I see I'm bleeding through the skin, had to take my pants off, blood's running down my skin. Uh, I felt relatively okay, but I thought, what is that? Uh, hmm. Call a doctor and said, can you come? I said, I'm not quite sure. I just looked into the mirror. I don't really recognize myself. So my face is changing. Um, it's swelling up and I don't know if I have an allergy or so. And he said, okay, I'm coming. So, uh, he came a little bit later before that. My mom called, are you coming this afternoon? As I did sometimes working in the West, visiting her in the East. I said, oh, no, how mothers are, they must feel it. She said, there's something not right. Um, I'm coming. And she came and she almost, she knew it was me, but she would not have recognized me on the street the way I looked by then. So then a little bit later, the doctor came, he picked me up, he said, have you just been to Asia? Have you brought some food with you? Anything? Uh, have you eaten something in particular? Or have you been to Africa? And I said, no, 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 I did all kinds of tests, I was in a hospital. He said, oh, I'm concerned about your heart, it's flimmering, and it looks like not that you're about to have a heart event. So I got a, a heart monitor around that you carry and got some medication. They thought you must have poisoned yourself somewhere, but they could not find it. It was just odd. The strange part of the story that went on for about four weeks to test and the hand healer healed me finally, whatever he did. And I did not believe in it. it was uh, almost uh, like one of those shaman people. He lived extremely simple and he said that there's so much energy in your body. Uh, he, through hand healing, helped me. And this is when the wound started to close. So by then I thought three, four weeks in panic uh, with your heart racing again, doctor saying, oh, I hope there's not something else coming. Your heart may be damaged. It luckily wasn't after all, but that's what they thought. So then I re realized, wait a minute, what about the girl? She hasn't visited you in four weeks. Hmm, that's not really the nice way. Uh, okay, we knew each other only a few weeks, so I went to work. And I said, where is so-and-so? And he said, oh, uh, she uh, quit her job four weeks ago. Thought, hmm, that is very odd. Talked to my friends again, and they, oh, my God, the woman, maybe she tried to kill you. And we were still kind of joking because uh, how can you explain this without having the insider knowledge? So... I went back to work. I could finally go to work. Asked the personnel director. I said, yeah, here, a relationship, something gone wrong. I still have to give her some stuff back. I just wanted to talk to her. And he said, oh, we can't hand out the address. 
a few cognacs later. He did give me the address. It was in Berlin, Marzahn, one of those big parts of East Berlin back then with the newly built uh, high rises where thousands and thousands of people lived. So I looked for the address to eventually find out the address was wrong. It was the false address that she had given to the personnel department. So after I had who I thought was a friend called, tried to find his business, I had met her. The moment I got sick, she had quit her job so that many, many years later, somebody put this all together and said, you know what, that looks like maybe this is somebody who has worked for one of the departments of the Stasi who were moving those huge sums of money to the West, to Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and so on. And they didn't want to be found and now they try to finish you so how everything i will never be able to prove it uh, the people have disappeared luckily i have those witnesses as my mom back then i tried to find the doctor again to look into the health files he's unfortunately long retired so that was a huge story of my life but i still mm, didn't think This cannot be that somebody's trying to kill you for something uh, where you don't even know what you know, or maybe just the person who you know. So uh, other friends said, oh, you cannot tell this. Otherwise, otherwise people will think you're a whack jock. Uh, where does something like this happen other than in movies? And if you would see this in a movie, you would think, nah, that's too, this is stuff that doesn't happen in reality. But I had a Kung Fu student in Rostock who, during the 80s, pre-fall of the Berlin Wall, pre the reunification of Germany, one day he came to the training and basically signaled me that he wants to talk to me outside, where he then told me when we walked on the street that he wants me to throw him out of the Kung Fu group. It wasn't the official Kung Fu group. It was private training, as it was during East German times. I said, why would I want to throw you out of the group? He said, well, by the way how I'm asking you, you might by now imagine where I work in the city and I'm supposed to do something that I don't want to do. And if you throw me out of the group, then I'm burned and then I cannot do it. I said, oh, you work There, he said, yes. I said, yeah, okay. Mm, so then, uh, I'm very sorry, but uh, you're not a member of the group because you always came too late and you disturbed the lessons. He said, thank you. And then I didn't see him again. Uh, now people tell me when those things happened, didn't you completely freak out? You don't put this all together until decades later when things begin to make sense. You think of them as single occurrences that could have had many reasons. So now that I had this, what appears to be attempt on my life in 91, uh, was 92, um, 93. So I had gone a little bit off the grid, was teaching Kung Fu, traveling a lot. So I felt still a little bit weird because my father was every now and then telling my mother, are you sure? Why don't you tell your son to go out in the world? Maybe Germany is not the best place for him. 
So uh, end of 93, I had been to Mexico, had been for a while in England, thought I might stay in London, had been to Denmark, stayed in uh, Italy, and uh, I just wasn't sure. So suddenly I meet this former Kung Fu student from Rostock, East German Times again, and he says, maybe it's a good idea for you to leave the country. And I was kind of joking, said, oh, God, not you, uh, too. My father is telling my mother always I should leave the country and that I'm not safe here or that it's not good for me. Um, and he said, well, um, I was lucky that I was taken over by the now by the West German Secret Service. And uh, I'm working uh, in a department, so I can only say your name is still flagged and what happened in 91 was not uh, an accident where I thought, how could he know what happened in 91? And somebody who was once in the East Secret Service is now in the reunited uh, Germany Secret Service. And then uh, this year, around Christmas, my father had said, told my mother again, okay, your son should leave now. It is better. And I, th I had no idea what should I do. So then I remembered a day in Cottbus. In Cottbus Prison, 1989, again, pre-fall of the Berlin Wall, where for some reason, some West German who may have helped smuggle people who was there in prison may have left a travel book from West Germany in the East German Cottbus Prison Library about Canada. And that day in the backyard, we stood, one of us had uh, gotten the book out of the library and we looked at it and many people, I don't think back then I thought uh, Canada was so far away. Um, and we looked at the skyline on a photo of Vancouver in this book in prison and everybody said, ah, Canada the last free country, a real free country. You can disappear in the Rockies. You can disappear in some province. This is where we go. No, none of them did it. They all had their careers, the ones that I met again in West Germany. So now there was end of 93, early 94. Hmm, Canada. Okay, maybe. So I just packed one suitcase and bought a ticket to Canada and arrived there and I had no idea when I think back today I think oh my gosh uh, if I would see this young man I would say what the hell are you thinking I have no idea what to do there I was at the airport and asked so do you have uh, what are you doing I said I'm on vacation so uh, are you staying in a hotel? Uh, yeah, sure, of course. Where are you staying? And for some silly reason, the village people came to my mind, YMCA. In my mind where the village people dancing, YMCA, said, I'm staying at the YMCA. Oh, the Y in downtown? Uh, sure, downtown. It was at the time still my school English, which wasn't the best. And they, all right. Have a nice time. Enjoy. Welcome to Canada. And there I stood now the next day in Vancouver in Canada when it was still half around the world as far as you can get from Germany and thought, okay, I packed my suitcase. Two people, my father who had some uh, not proven connection to the Secret Service who also 
had no connection with me anymore, but knew about 91, the poisoning incident, which my mother had not told him. The former East German Secret Service agent, now West German Secret Service agent, tells me I should go. Said so, now I'm in Canada, now I'm supposed to start a new life. And so, well, I started and it was extremely bumpy. It was many years later that I got married and had children there. And um, now at some point it was about, with many other incidents, uh, 25 years later. And now I'm back in Germany uh, at the moment taking care of my mom and uh, looking back. And a lot of this history is finally so puzzle pieces coming together yet they're still not making sense because even during my Canadian years, more things happened that connect back to the old Secret Service, even though people say, yeah, but that's 30 years ago. Think about it. Uh, that's history. I said, and no, not as much history as you think it is. And now we're sitting here and talking about it. <laughs> yeah, wow, Ralph, that's uh, that's some story there. So, so do you think that whoever was uh, trying to get you to leave the country or was trying to poison you was trying to cover the identity of that doppelganger? Uh, this is one of the theories by now. My mum actually talks about, she says, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, is maybe what saved your life by what we know now, also with the other incidents that happened during the Canadian years. She, uh, her theory is by now that they, she said, they probably wanted to get rid of you while in Cottbus and then the new guy with your identity would have started in the West because they wanted to get control over the deadly skills of this martial arts organization. And she said that the wall coming down probably crossed, uh, messed up all their play, uh, plans. Uh, the Secret Service eventually fell apart. The different departments made sure they survived. So that's why I got, uh, I was only once uh, the attempt to get rid of me, but that I probably know of something as other friends too. Maybe I'm not even aware of it that some of those departments moved a lot of money. I mean, this is known. And uh, that with identifying some of them, that this could have been the danger for me, why they were after me. We were talking earlier that Johannes or Johannes Treble's story would make a good movie. I think your, uh, <laughs> your story would be uh, pretty good as well. And we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Mark Labance, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. 
If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information